All right. Thank you so much, Ruby. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible up to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We're in a series in Philippians that we have called Risk Everything. And in this series, we've been seeing that, that Jesus is more valuable than anything else we might consider treasure. We might consider our source of security in this life. And so when we say risk everything, talking about the whole letter of Philippians, we're not really encouraging you to be reckless in an irresponsible manner. Uh, manner. What we're saying is that we want you to see Jesus as the most valuable thing in life. And as we let go of our, our death grip on everything else that has made us secure in life, and we turn and follow Jesus, that's where we find true joy. This week, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So you can open up your Bibles to Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we've actually got Bibles under the chairs there. We'd love for you to, to own a Bible. If you don't even have one at home, you can take that and keep it. We've got more Bibles in the closet, so you're welcome to keep that. But go ahead and open that up to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Um, and the title of the sermon this week is, Look Out for Joy Killers. Look out for joy killers. And so as I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about kind of childhood experiences and when parents have to kind of guard their kids from doing things they don't want them to do, right? Uh, I don't know. How many of y'all remember stuff from when you were like three, four years old? Anybody have memories that go back that far? Some of you? Okay. It's an interesting poll because I know some people, I talk about this with friends, some people just don't remember anything past like 10 years old, right? Um, and then other people remember way far back. Well, this is the kind of experience that I'm sure you had when you were three or, three or four years old, even if you don't remember it, okay? So here it is. You're three or four years old. You're just kind of trying to be yourself. You're trying to do your thing, right? You're trying to like uh, live out everything that you were meant to be, look at, inside at your heart. Follow your own desires, right? All the things that our society tells us to do. And you're just trying to do your thing and you're walking, or walking along. You see something pretty cool across the street and you're like, hey, I want to go check that out. And you start to walk across the street to go to that thing that's so awesome. And what happens? Your parents say, look out, right? Why do your parents do that? Why do your parents have to freak out and ruin your fun? Why? Why would they kill your joy that way? Well, because they know that cars are going across the street, right? And that the cars will actually kill your joy more than them screaming, look out. They might have screamed, look out. They might have screamed, stop. They might have grabbed you and pulled you from the street, right? We've all had this experience. Even if you don't remember it, it happened when you were three or four. And Paul is going to do a similar thing in this text. Paul is going to freak out, okay? So I just want to prepare you. There's going to be harsh language. There's actually going to be inappropriate language. Now, the language scholars debate, are these technically cuss words that Paul is using? It's hard to say, but it's definitely not the kind of language you would use in polite company, okay? That is for sure, just like in polite company, you don't scream, look out at the dinner table, right? You save that for important emergency situations. That's what this is. That's what Paul is going to do. So he's going to say, here's the positive command rejoice in Jesus. He is the fountain of true joy. Run to Jesus for true joy. Rejoice in him. That's the positive command. And then we're going to see three negative commands where he says, look out, look out, look out. And then he's going to use some inappropriate language. Okay? So that's where we're going. Let's read the text. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write 
the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are weighty truths. This is a place in Scripture where Paul gets upset. I've been sharing with you all. I've been reading a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And the emphasis of the book is to come to Jesus. He's the one that says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. And so he focuses on the gentle and lowly and humble heart of Jesus that invites us to himself to find true joy. He spends a chapter in this book talking about, but how do we reconcile the gentleness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus? How do we reconcile that with the anger of Jesus? Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees and he calls them names, just like Paul is doing here. Jesus braids a whip and he drives money changers out of the temple. How do we reconcile that anger, that freaking out with his gentleness and his kindness and his grace for us? Well, Ortland in the book argues, and I think he's right here, that you see the anger of Jesus fueled by his compassion. Just like your anger, your screaming when a child runs into the street is not born out of hatred. It's born out of compassion for that child. You want that child to know true joy, which does not include getting run over by a bus. Paul's doing the same thing in our passage here. Jesus does the same thing multiple times in the New Testament. He says, look out, look out. There are things that you think are going to give you joy, and they're just not. They might give you joy for a little while, but Jesus is the only true source of joy. He's the only one we can really count on. So I'm going to pray for us that we would hear this. Um, I've felt kind of a weight. I felt overwhelmed with this all week because this is so important. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. I say that like every few weeks, but really this one is. And so I've just felt this weight, right? Like I want to give you a six hour lecture, but I know that's not what you need. You need the Holy Spirit to meet you here in a not too long time of looking at the scripture. So I'm going to pray that the Lord would rein me in a little bit, but I'd pray more importantly that the spirit would meet us here, that he'd hear from us today. So let me pray. God, we need you. We need you. We pray that your spirit would meet us here, that we would hear these words. These are important words. You speak to us in your word, and we want to hear your voice. And we know that we have 
hard hearts, stiff necks, and we resist your word so often. So we pray that your spirit would soften us, would help us to listen, would help us to find true joy in you and you alone. Help us, Lord. Meet us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we've got a a positive and a negative. If you don't like negatives, the positive is rejoice in Jesus. That's the positive. That's the theme. Again and again and again. Rejoice in Jesus. Find happiness in Jesus. That's what we're commanded to. Um, I think a lot of times the Bible uses a language that feels a little archaic for us. How many of you, when you're going out for pizza, say, hey, let's go rejoice at CC's Pizza tonight, right? Or let's rejoice in Chick-fil-A. We usually don't use that language, right? Um, So you might use other language like I'm so pumped or I'm excited or I'm really happy about this or I'm really stoked or whatever. I don't know. Depending on your generation and your zip code, probably you say it in different ways. But I want you to take that language that you would normally apply to your favorite restaurant or your girlfriend or boyfriend or your favorite hobby and say, Paul and Jesus is commanding you to apply that kind of excitement to Jesus. Say that Jesus is really the ultimate source of joy. And then he's going to give some negatives. He's going to say, look out for these joy killers. They're real joy killers that we think. They're good things, but they can distract us from Jesus. So the three things that can distract us from Jesus, three joy killers he tells us to look out for are external religion. Religion is good. We're religious people. We're here in a religious room having a religious service. But external religion can kill true joy in Jesus. The second one we'll see is personal confidence. Personal confidence is good. It can be very helpful in life, right? But it can distract us from finding true joy in Jesus. And then the third one is physical safety. Physical safety is good. I started off with an illustration of not running in the street, right? Physical safety is important. We want to preserve this physical life that God's given us and be good stewards of it. But physical safety can kill our true joy in Jesus, okay? So starting off, first point, look out for the joy killer of external religion. External religion is a joy killer. So he already said to rejoice in Jesus. Uh, He says finally, and that's not finally in the same sense that like when I'm trying to finish up a sermon and I say last point and then I talk for 30 more minutes, it's not finally in that sense, but it's more like, and here's this one more important thing. It's kind of a looser term in the Greek, just so you know, he's saying finally, Really kind of like, this is a big thing here. Don't miss this, people. Rejoice in Jesus. That's in verse 1. Now in verse 2, he goes negative. In verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, there's a term for these people. They're called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who would hold up the external marks of their religion Jewish religion from the Old Testament and say, this is really important if you want to be in God's family and be in God's presence. And this can be confusing for us because there are good things in external religion. We all participate in an external religion. And here's the difference. You can either use external religion as a way to get into the presence of God, or you can use external marks of religion as a way to worship the God who's come after you in Jesus. And that's where the mix-up is, right? So let's start with the language he uses here. This is the first kind of cuss word, quote-unquote, or inappropriate language that he uses. He calls them dogs. Now, that's confusing for us because we like dogs. Uh, some of you guys, you actually have dogs that sleep in your bed, right? I'm not saying that's wrong. I wouldn't do it. I'm not saying that's wrong, right? 
Uh, but we have much better hygiene today. You know, there's ways for you to get the bugs out of the dog before they get into your bed and all that. You know, so there, there's ways to do that semi-cleanly, right? We love our dogs. But that's kind of a quirk of our culture. In first century Mediterranean world, especially the Jews, dogs were like gigantic rats, right? That's what they considered them. So they're saying, he's saying, watch out for these gross, dirty, disgusting animals. That's what he's saying. So he's he's insulting them, right? Um, we have other ways we would say that in our language, which again, would be inappropriate to call someone. But here's the thing. Paul is taking their language, their insults. They use that insult, the Judaizers, to talk about Gentiles. What's a Gentile? A Gentile is any tribe member, any ethnicity that's not a Jew. So most of us, some of you might be Jewish by birth, by DNA, but most of us are Gentiles. There's probably like 10, 20 different ethnicities in this room right now, worshiping Jesus together, united in the family of God through what Jesus has done for us in Christ. And so the gospel says that faith in Jesus brings you into the family of God. The Judaizers say, and just to be clear, this isn't even exactly what the Old Testament says. This is what the Judaizers say. They make their external Old Testament religion the only way to get into the presence of God. They say that keeping these external marks is what gets you into the presence of God. And so I grabbed a picture of someone at a security checkpoint. Um, if you're going into a secure area, you usually need uh, to you know, be x-rayed, this is going into an airport. A lot of you work at the military base. You know, you've got to be checked for your ID going into a military base. We, we do these security checkpoints in all kinds of places in our life, right? The question is, how do I get into the place I want to be? And for us, those of us that grew up in the 20th century, we had this phrase that we got used to um, in religious circles. I came to Christ back in the 20th century. Um, and we had this phrase we would say a lot, and it's like, if you see God after you die, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Any of you ever heard that phrase before? A lot of you. Okay. Yeah. Some of the older folks like me. Um, and some of you younger folks too. Why should I let you into my heaven? Right? That's, that's kind of the question. How do we get into heaven? Well, those who would uphold external religion are going to say, if you look like me and walk like me and talk like me, that's how you get into heaven. Right? You've got to have these external markers of religion. That's how you get in. Paul and Jesus say, it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. It's Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, taking your sin, my sin upon himself on the cross. And he died for us, died in our place. He was our substitute. And not only that, he rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. We trust in that. We believe in that. We believe in Jesus. We're trusting in him. And that is enough to get us into heaven. Here's another way to think about it. Um, in the 20th century, we talked a lot about how are you going to get into heaven. But I think there's this kind of emotional thing we have to deal with is how do I get into God's presence right now, right? Do you live moment by moment feeling like God is disappointed in you because you haven't done the right things, because you haven't lived up to the external markers of your religious leaders? Paul would say, Jesus would say, Jesus is enough and that God is pleased with you because of what Jesus has done for you. Judaizers, though, they're saying, no, that's not enough. You've got to keep all the external markers. You've got to do these things that we say to do. And so he's going to get specific here, and he's going to talk about an external mark of the Jewish religion, which was circumcision. 
He says, look out for the dogs, right? He turns their insult that they would use for outsiders. If you're outside of the Jewish kingdom, you're a dog, you're gross, you're dirty. Paul says, no, actually, those of you that say there's any other way into God's presence besides Jesus, you're actually the dog. And then he says, you're an evildoer. You're an evildoer. This is crazy. He's, he's talking to these guys, Pharisees, these Jewish teachers. They were like the preachers and Bible professors of their day. We continually see this fight between Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospels. Reread this and look at every time Jesus gets into a conflict with the Pharisees. He would say things like, you've cleaned the outside of the dish, but the inside of the cup is still dirty. What if you went to a restaurant? It's probably happened to you, right? It's happened to me before. The outside of the dish looks nice, but then you're like, there's, there's stuff in my cup, right? You're kind of grossed out by that. Jesus said that's what their external religion was like. They had all the markers. They had the ceremonial laws, but their hearts were still impure. Now, just to be clear, there's, I said this last week, there's consistency in the moral law. The moral commands that Jesus puts on our life are the same as the moral commands in the Old Testament. And a lot of teachers will try to tell you, no, you can't really break up the the moral commands of the Ten Commandments apart from the ceremonial external markers. You can't really break those things up because in the Old Testament, they never really break them up. Well, it is true to some level, they're all connected, right? But there is this kind of way that God separates out his moral commands. He takes the Ten Commandments and he puts them in a golden box at the center of their worship. So when people try to tell you that if you demand sexual purity, you should also keep all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, you can tell them, no, that's, that's not right. That doesn't make sense, right? There is a difference between the ceremonial external markers of the Old Testament religion. They are ways of showing what we believe about God. And the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians says we no longer have to keep all those external markers of the Old Testament. We still have to keep the moral law, though. We still have to maintain the same purity. We still have to obey God. The, the moral code is the same. But the things that have changed is we're no longer practicing those ceremonies at the temple any longer. That's different. Hebrews explains this. Go read uh, Hebrews. And if you want to talk more about this, I'd love to talk to you about it because this is an area that a lot of Christians get confused. It's not simple, but I do believe it's clear once you've really read the Old and New Testament. There's also kind of state judicial laws because Israel was a nation state. And we're not that nation state. The church today is a, a worldwide kingdom of people from many states and many nations, right? Multi-ethnic church of God. And so the the laws that apply just to the nation no longer apply anymore, right? And so Hebrews says the ceremonial laws no longer apply because they're fulfilled in Jesus. They were ceremonies whereby they were putting on a drama at the temple, right? They were painting a picture. They were rehearsing a script that was telling the world that God is absolutely holy and the only way to enter into the presence of an absolutely holy God is by sacrifices. And one day, God would make a once and for all perfect sacrifice. Hebrews says that has now happened through Jesus Christ. So we no longer have to tell the story of someday this will be fulfilled because now it's fulfilled in Jesus. So that's why we're no longer bound to keep those ceremonial laws. One of them was circumcision. This is a little embarrassing to explain, but circumcision was a surgical mark on the male body. And it was a way, again, of telling the story that although all of humanity is corrupt, God was going to purify a people for himself. And so those of you that have kids, you know, you kind of just pass on your sin and your brokenness to your kids. 
And by marking the male reproductive organ in this way, God was saying, I'm going to purify a people for myself. It's just one more window into God saying, I'm going to fix this. The world is broken, but I'm going to save people. I'm going to bless the world. And that is now fulfilled through Jesus. He is our true hope. So Paul says these guys are mutilating the flesh because the surgical mark is no longer required. Everything that we longed for and hoped for is now fulfilled in Jesus. We no longer need these external marks. We have Jesus. Verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. Paul is saying those of us who trust in Jesus, who glory in Christ, are the true circumcision, meaning we're actually pure. And if you go back and read, just do a word search of circumcision in the Old Testament, there's a lot of discussion of the physical mark, but there are also these places where God said, I really want your hearts to be circumcised. I really want pure hearts that love me. God was saying that's really the point, and we find that in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can purify our hearts. So Paul says, we're the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. We don't worship in a going through the motions, just doing the external mark sense. We worship Jesus because we actually think he saved us. We don't worship to get him to love us. We worship because he loves us. Here's the problem with external religion. We can all do it and not actually love God. We can go through these external rituals. We can do these things, and they're not always bad. They're bad when we think that's the way we get into the presence of God. They're bad when we think that's what lets us into heaven. Instead, the gospel says God came after us. He saved us. We were broken. He saved us. We couldn't save ourselves. And now we worship. Any external marks that we uh, live out or display should be ways for us to worship Jesus, to say, Jesus saved me. He is my Savior. So if you want to go back, this is, this is confusing too. If you want to go back and like practice Old Testament Jewish feasts, go for it. That's a great way to learn about Jesus. Just don't tell other people they have to do it or they won't get into heaven, Right? That's really the line. We see these debates in the New Testament. The Jews and the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, were, were trying to work this out. Like, is it, is it okay to still be a Jew? Like, God hates Jews now? No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying you don't have to become a Jew to get into heaven. So we can practice some of these Old Testament rituals. We can do these things that can help us to worship Jesus. Just don't say to other people that they have to. That's where we cross the line into Judaizing, saying, It's not enough to know Jesus. You also have to take on the external marks of the Old Testament Jewish religion. So he says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. So here's the thing. It's real easy to point this out with the Judaizers and say, they were doing this, right? And that's wrong. We're in this new age. Hebrews is clear. But you know what? We can do that as Christian people as well, right? We can confuse methods of worshiping Jesus with Jesus himself, the source of our worship, right? So what are some ways that we do that today? Because most of us as Gentiles in a Christian church in the 21st century are not calling people to do Jesus plus Old Testament rituals, but sometimes we mix up methods and the worship of Jesus in our day by doing things like saying, it's not enough to read your Bible and pray. You have to read your Bible and pray the way I do, right? And if you don't do it the way I do, you're not going to make it into heaven. Right? Do you see that? That's, that's kind of a confusing methods and, and principles there. Jesus is our Savior, so we should want to read his word because our Savior is speaking to us. 
But then when I tell you, you got to read it for 30 minutes every morning at 5 a.m. If you don't do it in that way, you're not going to make it into heaven. See, I've just, I've slipped over and I'm confusing methods with the source of life, Jesus himself. Uh, sometimes people call this methodolatry. We begin to worship our methods. Churches do this all the time. We have to look out for this joy killer. That doesn't mean it's wrong to have methods, right? Here's the other side of that. If you're a new believer, you're just starting to walk with Jesus, you could be like, I want to read my Bible, but I don't understand it. I could be like, okay, here's a plan. I'll give you a plan. I'll give you a method. Just know it's not the only method. This is something to try, right? Here's an order. Here's a way of life. Let's do it this way. Paul later in Philippians is going to say, follow me as I follow Christ. It's perfectly reasonable. You can be excited about this Bible study you just did and like, oh, you got to read this book. It's the best book. I love it. It's helped me to see Jesus more clearly. You just don't want to walk over into the area of saying, people that don't read this book, they're lost. They're dogs. (laughs) They're outsiders, right? Do you see how we have to continually walk that tightrope of saying, Jesus is my only hope. Do I practice methods? Oh, yeah. Do I practice holidays? Oh, yeah. Do I do things in a certain way? Yes, I do. But I do those seeing that Jesus is my only hope. He's the one that saved me. He's my my source of true joy. Giving, right? Of course, it's right and good to give. The church needs your financial gifts for us to continue to do what we're doing. The Bible says it's good to give to the poor. It's good to give to support Bible teaching. It's good to give to support missions. We encourage all that. But then when I cross over, I'm like, well, it has to be this exact percentage or you're going to hell, right? And I was like, I've crossed a line. There are methods, and then they're seeing Jesus as my true source of life. There's all kinds of different ways that we do this. As a church, we need to always be on guard that we would keep pursuing Jesus, keep practicing external methods, but holding our external methods loosely recognizing that they're just ways for us to worship Jesus by the Spirit, seeing that he is our only hope. And if we start to try to force other people to do church our way, we are dangerously close to becoming those dogs ourselves, right? By becoming false teachers that are actually pointing people away from Jesus instead of pointing people to Jesus. So we'll move on to the next point. The next point is that personal confidence can be a joy killer. Personal confidence is a joy killer. My wife and I were debating this because she's like, isn't confidence a good thing? So this can be a little confusing. I'm a somewhat optimistic person, so I can, I can see how that's helped me in life, right? Like a vague sense of personal confidence has helped me to get through some things in life. Um, but it can also be a distraction from Jesus, right? I can begin to be confident like, like, oh, it'll just work out, right? Like things just go well and it'll be fine. Or if you actually have skills, right? Maybe you're actually good at things and you don't have just a vague, unrooted sense of confidence, but you're like, no, I'm really good at this thing. Even that can become a distraction from Jesus. It's not wrong, right? It's not wrong to be good at things. We just have to rest our confidence, not in our flesh and what we're good at. We rest our confidence in Jesus. So Paul says it this way in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul's saying, they're telling you to be a good Jew to be saved. I'm telling you that I was the best Jew and it's still not enough. Only Jesus can save you. So Paul goes on in verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the way it was prescribed in the Old Testament ceremonial law. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was in the right tribe. I'm the right ethnicity. 
then he goes on, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? So they had the 12 tribes, sub-tribes within Israel. And Benjamin was like one of the best ones, like high class, kind of like being a Texan, right? You know, like, I'm an American, and I'm a Texan, yeah? And so he's like, I'm an Israelite. I'm not just an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, right? He keeps going. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, the best of the best. As to the law, a Pharisee. Again, the Pharisees were the guys that Jesus was always fighting with. They were the Bible teachers, the strictest obeyers of the law in the first century. These are the preachers and Bible professors of the first century. Paul was like, yeah, I was, I was one of those guys. I was the best of the best. I had the Bible memorized. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You want to talk about zeal? I was murdering Christians. That's how zealous I was for keeping the law. And God had to change Paul's heart. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Righteousness under the law, blameless. Romans explains Paul came to realize he wasn't really keeping the law. The last commandment is the best one to help us figure out that we're not really keeping the law. It's the one that says we should never desire anything that's not ours, coveting. Paul explains in Romans that he finally figured that out. But according to the Pharisee system, where they just looked at external markers, he was like, by that system, I'm blameless. I was the best in this religion game. And that gave him great personal confidence in the strength of his flesh and his ability to do this system of salvation. But in verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So again, this is this risking everything concept. He's like, I realized that wasn't enough. And I needed Jesus. I was the best of the best. Any of you see that old Tom Brady interview? I can't remember if it was 60 minutes or 20 minutes or I don't know. One of those, one of those shows, 48 hours, 20, 20, 60. It's one of those kind of shows. They're interviewing Tom Brady. And uh, basically he was like, yeah, I've achieved the top of my game. And this was years ago when he'd only won like 10 Super Bowls. You know, he's won like 27 Super Bowls now. But back then still, he was at the top of his game. And he's like, yeah, it's just... It's just not enough. Like he was the best of the best. He was everything our society desires to be. He had this great strength of his flesh, this great personal confidence, and it still wasn't enough. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's like, it's not, it's not enough. It's still not enough. We need Jesus. The way that Paul explains this in Romans is he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those of us that are like open sinners and we know it, and we just openly rebel. We know we're sinners, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul says in Romans, even those who meticulously try to keep the law and try to do the right thing, and you've got your Eagle Scout merit badge, and you fertilize your lawn, and you're just doing everything right, he's like, it's still not enough. You cannot save yourself by what you do. You need Jesus. I need Jesus, and that's actually good news He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So again, we have to be clear. It's not that good things are bad things. It's just that Jesus is the ultimate. He's the best thing. Everything else pales in comparison to Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 8, and he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's another one of those words in the Greek that scholars debate, like, 
is it like a cuss word or is it profanity or is it just kind of inappropriate? Uh, it can mean rubbish or garbage, filth, scum. It's a Greek word, skubala. Again, here, here's the concept. You don't call a good life trash except in comparison to the incredible treasure that Jesus himself is. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I've come to this point where I look at this and it's trash compared to Jesus. Jesus is ultimate value. Jesus is ultimate wealth and treasure. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is a beautiful statement of what we would call some of the solas of the Reformation. So at one level, we are united with all historic Christians. We all have the same view of God when we go back to ancient Christian orthodoxy and some of those original creeds of the church, you know, the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. We all believe in God revealed as as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want to honor the ancient church in that sense. But we're also a part of a tribe that kind of split from medieval Catholicism because at the time, medieval Catholicism during the time of the Reformation was teaching that your good works was ultimately what got you into heaven. And this is one of those sections of scripture that really clearly says that that is not the way. That is not how it works. It's not the things we do. It's not our works of the law, but it's Jesus. So we have these solas, which is a Latin word for alone. So it's by faith alone in Jesus. It's by grace alone that Jesus has given us as a free gift. It's by Christ alone, Jesus stepping in for us, not what other saints do for us. And so again, verse 9 I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. None of us knock on the door of heaven and say, here's my resume. I grabbed a picture of a resume here. If God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? Don't say, well, I taught Sunday school at Grace Bible Church. Now, we want you to teach Sunday school (laughs) at Grace Bible Church. Please, please, please teach Sunday school, right? Like we want you to do these things, but, but you don't offer your resume to God. You say, God, your graciousness is my only hope. You, you are my hope. And so this is the language of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, like one of his first shots over the bow when he's starting his public preaching ministry in Matthew 5. He's like, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, happy are those who are spiritually bankrupt. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's like, take your resume and tear it up and throw it away and just plead on the mercy of God. And that's what we're given in Christ. And so I was clarifying that here, a righteousness not from myself, not a righteousness from the law, keeping the law, or even looking like a law keeper with these external ceremonial rituals, but one that comes through faith in Christ. That's trust in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That internal righteousness changes you from the inside out. So we want to call people to doing righteousness but we say Jesus is the source. It starts with him. It starts with faith in Christ and what Jesus does for you, then that turns you to begin living in a new way. So we're facing this really confusing time in history where more and more people, you know, hate on the church and think the church is ridiculous and think that actually obeying the purity laws of the Old and New Testament are bad for us, right? Are going to kill our joy. But what Jesus says is, no, actually doing what I tell you to do is where you'll find true joy. You might get quick, easy joy, 
by fulfilling yourself, by being selfish. But eternal joy is found in obeying God, but obeying God doesn't get you into heaven. It's trusting in what Jesus has done for you. And then once you've trusted in what Jesus has done for you, that changes your heart about what God has told you to do. Then you're like, oh, obeying him makes more sense now because I see what he did for me. I see that he sacrificed himself for me. So, so now I actually want to apprentice with Jesus. I want to follow him and do what he tells me to do. So it's obeying his commandments, but doing it because he has loved you first. He has given himself for you. So what I'd like you to do by way of application is to think about your strengths and your sources of personal confidence. Like what are those things? What is it that makes you likable, confident, secure, valuable? If you're a depressed person, I don't, I don't mean this to make light. We can be there where we're like nothing, right? Like we can be in those places. I've been in those places before where I wake up and I'm like, I, I, got, I got nothing. If you're there, I want you to think about the things you aspire to have, the things that you're so depressed that you've lost or can't see right now. But either way, I want you to make that list. Say, these are the things that I think will, will give me confidence and strength. And I want you to offer that list to Jesus. This is tricky. Fasting is sometimes going without those things temporarily to find your true joy in Jesus. But in the end, God wants us to use our personal strengths, our personal source, uh, sources of confidence for his sake. So like y'all are good at things. You're good at things that I'm not good at. I'm not saying throw those things away. I'm just saying don't think that God is pleased with you because of those things. Write those down. Offer them to Jesus. Say, Jesus, help me to not think that these are what makes you delight in me. Help me to remember that you delight in me because of who you are. You saved me. You gave me grace. You have come after me on this rescue mission. Help me to see that that's the source of your delight in me. And then, because of that, help me to use these things for your kingdom. How can you use your gifts, instead of being a lighthouse that points at you, to be a lighthouse that points people to Jesus? Right? Like, if you're good at organization, or if you're good at service, or you're, God's made you smart, or God's made you physically strong, these are gifts that can give you personal confidence, but what we want to do, do is rest our confidence in Jesus and say, then, Jesus, I want to use these for your glory. Transfer those things out of your kingdom, out of your empire of dirt, into his kingdom. Say, Jesus, these are your gifts. You gave them to me in the first place. Okay, last point is physical safety. And this will be our our shortest point as we wrap up here. In verse 10, he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So again, one of the last places that we would seek joy is in our own physical safety. And again, I want to be clear, these are good things that we shouldn't throw away, right? Uh, just like we talked at the beginning, if kid's running in the street, you say, hey, stop. You want to keep that kid safe, right? If you're driving in your car, you're probably going to wear a seatbelt. You're going to take basic human precautions to do what we can do to preserve the stewardship of our life. But we don't want to find our ultimate joy in our physical safety. Because what Jesus did was Jesus left the perfection of heaven. This is what Paul described at the beginning of Philippians 2. He came for us into our brokenness, into the muck and the mire of this world. 
He gave himself for us. He gave up his safety for you and for me, and he wants us to do the same thing for other people. So that Paul can say this crazy stuff at the beginning of Philippians where he's like, yeah, of course it's, it's better if I die and go to heaven because then I'll be with Jesus, right? And that's the opposite of how we think. We think, no, it's better for me to like hoard this life and keep myself safe and hold on to everything I've got. Paul says, no, this life, the way he understands it, is for giving up and serving others. And so if we really see Jesus as our only hope, that'll start to loosen our death grip on even our physical safety. Again, I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm just talking about freedom. Freedom to say, like Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. We all want that kind of gospel freedom. I love the way the NIV states this. I think it's a little clearer in the NIV here. Verse 10 and 11, he says, in the NIV, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Paul is saying, I want to take part in what he's doing. The New Testament is very clear. We don't actually save people, right? Jesus did that by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. But we still are participating in what he's done. We're still delivering that to the world. We're still following Jesus as we suffer and struggle and we share that with other people. And he's saying, I, I can do that. I can participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul aspires to. This is what we should aspire to. Again, not just running headlong into suicide and destroying this life that God's given us, but chasing after Jesus and saying, that's ultimate. And Jesus calls me to carry my cross, to give up everything for him, to pursue him. What, what are ways that we could do that? What are ways that we could participate in the sufferings of Christ. Um, the story I really loved uh, was a story that one of my professors shared in seminary. So I got a picture that kind of calls this to mind. This is a, a rescue worker pulling someone out of the mud. Uh, this was just someone that was hiking along a river when there was a flood. She didn't realize how thick the mud was, and it, it became like a, like a quick, you know, like quicksand in the old Tarzan movies. There's mud sometimes you cannot get out of. This lady got stuck. They had to have rescue workers come in on a rope. The rescue worker barely got out himself to pull this person out, right? Well, that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. We know this world is messed up. It's, it's muddy, it's mucky, it's broken, but Jesus came after us. My professor shared a similar story. He and his brother had gone fishing with their dad when they were little boys, uh, and they were on this man-made lake, so it had you know, uh, a water cutoff section like a dam to, to dam up a, a river or creek to make a man-made lake. And so dad was like, hey, y'all can play on the bank. You can take the canoe out. You can swim and have fun. Just stay off of that structure over there, the concrete that separates the water. There's sharp metal. There's concrete, and it's covered with moss. Boys, it's slippery. You're going to fall. You're going to hurt yourselves. So stay off of that. That's going to ruin your joy. It's going to ruin our day. Everything else, though, is fine. Have fun. Do whatever you want. Dad's fishing over on a certain hole. He's a little bit out of their view. So what do, what do the boys do? They, they go to the dangerous spot, right? And they're over there climbing and pushing each other off of the concrete and the metal. My professor said his, his brother fell, and he fell hard. And he gashed up his arm, and he was split open and bleeding everywhere. And they were stuck, and they're crying, and they're screaming for Dad. And, you know, as first picture of his dad is this flash of anger because the boys did what he expressly told them not to do. 
But then the second image, he said, is more burned uh, forever in his brain. His dad came over to where they were. His dad pulled his brother out of the mud, and he'll always have this picture of his dad carrying his brother covered in the moss and slime of that water, covered in mud, and covered in his brother's blood. And he said that will always be burned in his brain as a picture of his father's love for him and his brother. And that's a, just a little taste, a little picture of what Jesus did for us. Philippians 2 says he left the comforts of, of heaven. He knew this world was full of muck and slime and dirt, but he left his comfort and he pursued us in love. Because of his great love for you and for me, he came after us. He came after us to save us, to rescue us. God is pursuing you. And what Paul is saying is when you have that vision of Jesus, when you trust in what Jesus has done for you, when you see that Jesus has saved you, that will turn you into the kind of person that's willing to take risks for others, that's willing to spend yourself, to get in the muck and the slime and the mud of this world to serve others, to follow Jesus. So, there's a lot of ways to do that. Those of you I know, I see you doing this in your daily life, serving your neighbors, counseling friends at work, helping other people in your family, sacrificing your own comfort and convenience to serve others in the name of Jesus. I want to say thank you for that and keep going. Keep, keep going. Keep pointing people to our Savior as you carry others covered in their blood and muck and slime you're pointing the world to our Savior, Jesus. But I want to invite you to keep going. There, there are more opportunities for that. Some of you I don't know so well. I don't know what you're involved in doing. One of the things we talk about a lot here is how we've got this great opportunity to rebuild this church. We really are starting over. We're a 15-year-old church we planted 15 years ago, but because of the pandemic, everybody's kind of starting over again. Um, and this is a transient city anyway, so you know a lot of people move in and out. We have great opportunities to point people to Jesus through our service, through our sacrifice. I want to invite you to, to be a part of the team here, to serve on ministry teams at Grace Bible Church. We're a part of a church planting association called Acts 29. And what Acts 29 seeks to do is to start healthy churches that share the gospel of Jesus with others, help people to grow in Jesus, help people to share Jesus with other people, and multiplies all over the world. We've had the great grace and privilege as a church to be able to start three other churches in Texas over the last 15 years. Um, and we've also been able to help start ministries all over the world through our global partnerships. And so God's doing all kinds of great things here. Here's the next step you can take. You may not be called to be a church planter or a missionary. Next step you could take is to get into the muck and the mire of, of children's ministry, right? To serve kids, uh, to, to get uh, dirty, so to speak, <laughs> to serve in, in painful ways where you give up your, your independence, you give up your convenience to serve others, to tell others about Jesus, to serve with our elementary kids, to serve with our teenagers, to serve in the nursery, to serve on our welcome team. We want to invite you into what God is doing with us here. Um, again, we don't do these things to get God to love us. We do these things because we believe God loves us. Because we've seen the sacrifices that Jesus makes for us, we, we want to share that with other people. So I want to invite you into the process to serve on a team, to get involved. There's so many ways to do this, uh, but we do it because of Jesus. So we'll wrap up here. Um, if a kid is, is running into traffic, even, even if you're not a parent, 
Common sense would say you'd, you'd scream, you'd yell, you'd grab them, right? That's really what we're inviting you into, this kind of participation. Just the final picture is that that's, that's ultimately what Jesus did for us. He saw all of us running into traffic. You're like, but Jesus, this looks good. This looks fun. He's like, no, stop. And he came after us. And he entered into our world. He grabbed hold of us. He said, look out. But he didn't just do that, right? Like he, he ran into the street with us, and he's the one that got hit by the bus of sin and death. And the Bible says that he absorbed that death for us. He took our place. He is actually our substitute, dying on the cross for us. And he rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. So I want to call you and call myself for us to find true joy in him and what he's done and to look out for all those other joy killers that might distract us from finding ultimate joy in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have come after us. God, make us a community where supernaturally we we point to you and not to ourselves. Um, Help us to practice our religion in such a way that it's not merely externalized, but that it's about worshiping you because you're good to us. Help us to have a real confidence in the gifts and the strengths you've given us, but help us to see that they are indeed gifts of grace from your hand and that they don't give us any confidence before you, These are just means, again, for us to point others to your goodness and your grace. Help us to see, Lord, that even our physical safety is a stewardship you've given us. It's not guaranteed, and it won't last forever. Help us to spend it for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.